All right. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and um, I want to welcome you. I want to remind you next week, that's this coming Sunday, is Daylight Savings Time, so don't forget to spring forward, okay? Set your clocks. Uh, We are studying the Song of Songs. It is a collection of near um, Eastern, ancient, erotic poetry, which means that this sermon is PG-13, so I want to give you a heads up. Grab your Bibles and open up to the Song of Songs. Chapter 5. If you're using one of our Bibles, that's um, page 562. Um, But we're going to Song of Songs, chapter 5. As you're turning over there, um, I want to give you a little bit of of an intro to our our message. Today we're going to be talking about how to pursue intimacy in the midst of conflict, because the reality is um, we all have conflict, right? You want to know how you have conflict in marriage? You're, you're married, right? I mean, the bottom line is everyone who's married has had to deal with conflict. And um, conflict is usually seen as a bad thing. I want you to see that it really isn't. Conflict is a normal thing and, in fact, a necessary thing for us to experience the best of what God has given us in our marriages, if we handle it right. If we handle conflict poorly, um, man, we just ruin the whole thing. I want to tell you a story of a, a couple in Bosnia, Sana and Adnan. Um, they had a, a difficult marriage. It was full of conflict. They, they were having a very difficult time, in fact, figuring out how to manage their conflict. And, and as a result, um, Adnan started looking for outlets, right? And so while he was at work, he started hanging out online in chat rooms, just kind of talking and whining and, and had a username of Prince of Joy. Um, and, uh, and it didn't take long for Adnan as Prince of Joy to meet a woman in one of these, in these chat rooms um, while he was at work, and um, they hit it off. Her, her screen name was Sweetie. And, and the reason they connected was they were actually both in unhappy marriages. And, and so they were both um, talking about their, uh, their spouses and, and they would carry on conversations throughout the day. And, and they found that they actually looked forward to these conversations. Like it allowed them to let off steam. It allowed them to encourage one another, to, to be funny, to laugh, to flirt, um, or to be serious. And, and what ended up happening is, is their online friendship, their online fr- flirtatiousness um, soon came to eclipse their real-life romances. What they felt for their online partner was much stronger than what they felt for um, their real-life spouse. And uh, they couldn't wait to get away from work or from home to steal a few moments together online. It was so much more exciting so much more fulfilling than their conflict-filled, difficult marriages. Now, it's not surprising that they eventually decided they had to meet, um, that that it was going to be um, this wonderful moment where um, they got to actually see each other face-to-face and hang out. Um, So they set up a prearranged meeting place and um, decided that each would be carrying a single rose so that when they showed up, um, they would be able to identify one another. Prince of Joy... Um, finally got to meet his sweetie. Um, The great irony, of course, is that sweetie turned out to be Santa. Um, They had been flirting with each other. Um, Each thought they were flirting with somebody outside of their marriage, but Adna was actually flirting with his own wife, Santa. Now, if we were watching um, a romantic comedy, like You've Got Mail, this is the point at which 
everything would be set right, right? They would be like amazed and angry and they would have conversations and they would fall in love with each other all over again and they would ride off into the sunset. The problem is this is not a romantic uh, comedy. This is reality. The reality is, is that they were incredibly bitter and hurt. Um, they ended up getting divorced, each accusing the other of being unfaithful. Listen to what they had to say. Santa, in talking about this, said, I thought I had found the love of my life. The way Prince of Joy spoke to me, the way he wrote, the tenderness in every expression was something I had never had in my marriage. It was amazing. We seemed to be stuck in the same kind of miserable marriages and how right that turned out to be. We arranged to meet outside of a shop. Both of us would be carrying a single rose so that we would know the other. And when I saw my husband there with the rose and it dawned on me what had happened, I was shattered. I felt so betrayed. I was so angry. Adnan describing this said, I was so happy to have found a woman who finally understood me. And then it turned out that I hadn't found anyone new at all. To be honest, I still find it hard to believe that that person, sweetie, who wrote such wonderful things to me on the internet is actually the same woman I'm married to who has not said a nice word to me in years. I mean, this is crazy, you guys. This is, this is not fiction. This is reality. We hear this and we're like, seriously? Come on, guys. Like, seriously? You guys fell in love twice and you couldn't figure out how to make it work? I mean, obviously, there's some kind of chemistry here, right? I mean, they originally fell in love and then they got sick of each other and they fell in love with each other all over again. But as strange as this story is, it isn't unusual because falling in love is way easier than staying in love. Attraction is easy, but fostering for and, and, and fighting for intimacy is hard. Why? Because our hearts crave intimacy but our hearts get in the way. Dan Allender, um, who writes a lot about the human heart, says that there are two fundamental questions in the human heart. And it's in a parenting book, and he's describing how good parents can, can raise their children. Um, and he says, in the heart of every child is, is, is two fundamental questions. Can I get my own way? And am I loved? And that explains all the kids' behavior. Can I get my own way? In other words, can I be God? Will the world bend to my will and am I loved? I feel broken. I feel ashamed. Will you really love me when you really know me? When you're not present, am I still loved? When you're not smiling, am I still loved? When I do something wrong, am I still loved? There is a deep pride and a deep insecurity in the heart of every child. Now, here's the thing. When we grow up, those questions don't go away. <laughs> they just take on an adult face. Those two questions still plague the human heart. Can I get my own way? And am I loved? Here's the thing. We have to fight for deeper intimacy in our marriages, which means we're going to have to learn how to have healthy conflict that answers those questions in the right way. All right, in Song of Songs, we're not dealing with idealized, unrealistic love, right? This is not love poetry that is about love the way it should be. It is love poetry about the way, way love can be when it is handled in a godly way and pursued in a way that, that, that honors the gift that God has given us, right? Um, it is, it is it's real, right? 
Um, I had some people tell me that, that it seems unrealistic, that it doesn't really represent real men and real women and the desires of real men and real women. But here's the thing. This stuff is, is not rooted in the glorious by and by, like this is the way love's going to be someday. It's rooted in the gritty um, here and now, right? This is, this is a look at how human love, romantic love, erotic love can be now. And in our passage we're going to look at today is one of two passages in this book dealing with conflict. Okay, take a look at verses two through six. I want to unpack a little bit, um, and I want you to see what's happening. It starts off, I slept, but my heart was awake. So we're dealing with a nighttime scene. Now, whether she was half asleep and, and, and dreaming, um, or, or, or whether her heart here is actually speaking of her, her husband, um, it's hard to say, right? It's poetry. Um, but she says, my, my, I, slept, but my, uh, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Uh, I'm going to give you a little hint, ladies. If your husband wakes you up in the middle of the night and says, hey, honey, baby, sweetie, lover, right? If they're just piling on the pet names, um, there generally is a little bit of urgency there. You know what I'm saying? Like, Like he's knocking on the door and he's like, hey, baby, lover, honey, sister, dove, my perfect one. Why don't you open up, right? So he goes on. Um, For my head is wet with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. He's, he's asking to be let in. Poetry, we took a look at this earlier. The poetic motif here is, is clear. Um, a wall indicated sexual separation. A door indicated um, sexual activity. And what he's saying is, is um, to his wife is, is, I long for you right? He's coming to her in the middle of the night and and is like, I am fresh with urgency. I am fresh with desire. I am fresh with expectancy, right? And so he's probably played this whole thing out in his mind, how how this incredible evening of of romance and an erotic love is going to play out. And, and And he comes to her and she's like half asleep. And he's like, come on, baby, it's time, right? Notice how she responds. Hmm. Verse three, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? Um, it's a little inconvenient right now. Not quite sure I'm in the mood, right? I'm like half asleep, dude, right? All your urgency, all your knocking on the door. I'm just not sure I'm there yet, right? I mean, this whole thing about it, I'm just, I'm not sure, right? Verse four, my beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. This is, um, this is a challenging verse um, for a couple reasons. But, but one of the things I'll tell you, it's, it's it, when we picture this, when it says that he put his hand to the latch, it's talking about him physically moving um, into physical intimacy with her, right? She's not responding to him emotionally. And so he starts to assert himself physically. He is, he is, in a sense, trying to push the door open. And her heart is thrilled within her. That word thrilled actually means turbulent. Now, it can be taken in a positive or negative way. It is roiled. It is, it is, it is seething. It is, it is responding. And I think, honestly, right here, it's not in a positive sense. In other words, he's trying to push the door open. And what, what started off as a bit of reluctance on her part may flash up in the beginning as, as a bit of resentment. 
Like, like you're going to try to push me. You're going to try to, to in a sense, um, trigger something physically that I am not emotionally ready to engage. There's a resistance. Now, it doesn't mean that she stays there because we see in the poem that she actually does become responsive. And, and that, that stirring up of emotion, that stirring up of, 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 of thrilling, and, and it, it transfers, it moves into a positive emotional response. Verse five, I arose and I opened to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the hands of the bolts. Very sensuous. The, 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 the smell and the feel and the, and so she has now kind of turned the corner, right? In, in my, my reading of the poem, she's waking up, right? She is now ready to respond. She is actually coming now with her own eagerness and her own anticipation. But look what happens in verse 6. I opened to my beloved. In other words, I became sexually available to him. I started pursuing him and responding to him sexually, but my beloved had turned and gone. He was no longer available. In the poem, he's physically absent. And of course, that speaks of him being emotionally absent. That now that she's ready to respond to him, what she's finding is that he's closed off. That he's no longer available. That he is distant from her. See, what we're seeing here as we read through this is an intimate sexual moment that starts off with good intentions, but ends in frustration, isolation, misunderstanding, and hurt feelings. And anyone who's married knows that this is actually not that unusual, right? Anyone who's been married more than a week has, an, has had an awkward sexual moment, right? One of those moments where you, you thought, you came with anticipation, you came with a plan, you thought this was the way it was going to happen, only to find that you guys are like this. You're not connecting emotionally. You're not connecting physically. And it creates this awkward moment of expectation, but a lack of fulfillment, hurt feelings, and, and, and resentment, right? Because in the bottom, in the bottom line, what's happening here is, is both of you are saying, I want my own way. Now, that's not to say that, that your desire is wrong. Right? But what you do with that desire when it's frustrated can be wrong. Right? What they're saying is, I want my own way. He's saying, I'm showing up with urgency. I'm showing up with expectation. Are you available to me? And she's like, uh, what? What? I'm not, whoa, back off, dude. And then when she turns, she's like, no, I'm ready. I'm available. He's distant and he's gone. This is the seedbed of conflict in our marriages. When I don't want what you want, when you don't want what I want, when our expectations don't meet, we have conflict. Why? Because when we want something, it's an expression of our desire, and that desire is like an appetite. We're hungry for the fulfillment of our desire. We have expectations, and we generally play those expectations out to a point of fulfillment in our minds. We start moving toward fulfillment with an expectation that our desires will be met. And when those desires aren't met, we grow frustrated. We get hurt. We have conflict. Why? Because that's what we do. <laughs> you ever seen a two-year-old at the checkout stand? They see the candy, 
and their eyes just fill up with excitement and they reach out, candy, candy. I mean, it's all hope, all desire, all excitement until you say no. (laughs) And when you say no, all of that hope and all of that excitement transfers into hurt and then outrage, right? I mean, hell-bent fury rises up out of the heart of that child. Why? Because I'm not getting my way. I have a desire. You have the ability to meet that desire and you're getting in my way. Now, thankfully, most of us don't act like we did when we were two. Most of us. I'm going to pause right here and say that there are people we know who still act like two-year-olds. When their desires aren't met, they become violent. They become abusive. They become hurtful. And if that is you and you are in our church, I'm telling you, let us know. Because we will walk with you through that. Okay? And we're talking about dealing with conflict. We're talking about dealing with people who have appropriate emotional reserve. If somebody doesn't even have enough emotional reserve to refrain from becoming abusive and hurtful, we want to walk with you in that. Okay? Most of us, though, have learned how to mask our little temper tantrums. It doesn't mean we don't have them, but we've learned to mask them in adult ways, right? So when I don't get what I want, maybe I give you the silent treatment. I just get distanced and closed off like the guy in the poem. Maybe I I start acting with a bit of resentment, kind of passive aggressive in some ways, saying those things that I know you're not quite happy about me saying or doing those things that I know get under your skin a little bit. Maybe I become emotionally distanced. I'm polite and I'm totally above board, but my heart is totally closed off, right? And I know you know, right? I know you know, right? So we're like doing all the normal things and we're, but I'm like closed off, right? I'm letting you know that I am unhappy. See, what happens is that that, that pain of disappointment expresses itself in an outward expression of anger. I wanted what I wanted and I didn't get it. And, 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 and sometimes that comes out in really ugly ways, right? When we become sarcastic with each other, when we say mean and hurtful things to each other, right? It just comes out in mean and ugly ways, even if it's just the silent treatment. Because the silent treatment itself is a form of judgment that basically says, I'm not happy with you and I'm gonna close my heart off from you. You're not gonna get from me affection, warmth, attention, nearness. You're not going to get it. Why? Because I'm not happy with you right now. I didn't get what I wanted. See, we assume that we deserve better than we received. And since we deserved better, we now deserve resentment. That's what pride says. Pride says, I want to be treated like God. And when you let me down, I have the right to judge you. Why can't I have my own way? See, when we're in this mode, We focus on our disappointment. We focus on the other person's failing of us. We focus on how we've been treated unfairly. And in the heat of conflict, we often feel really justified. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like when you're in the middle of the conflict, you know what I'm saying? Like they've disappointed you. You feel so self-righteous, so right in being angry at them. 
Like, you know, even when you're like emotionally distant and you're being rude, that there are going to be consequences. You know that stuff's going to come out of this you're going to have to deal with, but in the moment you don't care. Why? Because you just feel so right about it, right? In the moment, your disappointed feelings feel so right. Like you deserved what you didn't get. So now you deserve to give them um, judgment. See, this is where pride steps in, makes us feel so right and so strong. The problem is, guys, pride is a, is a double-sided coin. On the one side is that self-righteousness and that strength, and on the other side is fear and insecurity. See, fear will soon creep in, and it flips our sinful hearts on its head. And we go from saying, can I get what I want? Why don't I get it? I deserve it, to you don't love me anymore. I'm afraid you're going to reject me. You didn't give me what I wanted. That must mean you didn't, you didn't love me enough to give me what I wanted. It must mean you don't care for me anymore. See, pride says I'm better and I deserve better. Fear says I am worse and you're not going to love me. So conflict leads to isolation and to fear. And that's exactly what happens in our poem. Take a look at verses six through nine. So she opens to her beloved, but her beloved had turned and gone. So they've both now hurt each other's feelings and, and kind of shut each other out. And, and he's become distant from her, right? And so what does she do? She says, I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about the city and they beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. Now, I don't want to try to allegorize this because I don't believe it's an allegory, but I do think it speaks symbolically, very powerfully of what happens to our souls when we are in the grip of insecurity and fear. There are so many things that come in and just beat us down. They strip away our garments. They strip away our dignity. They strip away our strength. And when we're in that place of pride and fear, especially in these areas where we are most intimate, most vulnerable, it can be incredibly painful when we feel rejected. She goes on, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. In other parts in the poems, she is, she is teaching the daughters of Jerusalem, but here she's not teaching. She is calling to them, pleading with them. He's gone. His heart is closed. Will you help? I'm in fear. And they come back and they echo that fear. What is your beloved more than any other beloved? Do you hear the pride? the subtle pride that's tempting, tempting there. Why should you value him when he's left you? Why should you love him when he's mistreated you? Oh, most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than any beloved that you adjure us thus? Why should you try to command us when he has so hurt you? You guys, that's the question that's gonna plague your heart. There's going to come a point where your pride and your fear come together and create this poisonous concoction. And it's going to, it's going to try to, to lure you, to deceive you, to tell you he's not worth pursuing. He's not worth chasing. You're better off alone. You're better off closed. You're safer closed. See, the second question is kicking into full force in her heart. Am I loved? 
Conflict fueled the pride that said, I deserve better. Fear kicks in and says, you're not safe. So you need to close off. You need to shrink back. You need to hide. There are a lot of people that get this kind of negative momentum going in their marriages and they never recover. Their pride causes them to rise up. Their fear causes them to pull back. One causes us to judge. The other causes us to hide. And in that position of self-righteous fear, we are unconquerable, unreachable. We have separated ourselves and closed ourselves off from any further intimacy. So how do we deal with this kind of conflict, right? How do we stop that kind of negative momentum in our marriages? How do we deal with disappointments and fears in a way that strengthens intimacy instead of destroying it? Well, look at the next part of the poem. (laughs) It's a little bit unusual. Um, This section of the poem at the end of chapter five is is the second of, 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 of four wasifs. Now, a wasif was a unique kind of ancient Um, Near Eastern erotic poetry where a bride would sing the praise of his wife's body or a wife would sing the praise of her groom's body. And and there was an element of the wasif that was used during the wedding ceremony. And and it seems kind of strange here, right? We're in the middle of a fight. (laughs) We're in the middle of them estranged. And yet she sings a wasif, a, a, a song of praise about her husband, in the middle of the conflict. It's an extended description, really, of his body. Um, And I would say based on a poem that she probably recited at their wedding. And here I think we can take it as an intentional refocusing of the relationship. Everything in her is causing her to rise up in pride or to pull back in fear, and instead she intentionally refocuses herself. She chooses to focus on her love for him, instead of her resentment toward him. She chooses to focus on what she loves about him, not what she wants to change about him. She chooses to fill her vision with what is good instead of what is broken. Take a look at the verses. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside full pools. I mean, picture the image there, those those birds. It's very sensual. Again, this poetry is filled with words that appeal to the senses. These birds sitting next to rippling waters. And it it talks about his eyes just being full of meaning, full of emotion, right? She goes on, verse 13, his cheeks are like beds of spices, probably talking about the aroma of his beard, that as he cared for it, right? Mounds of sweet smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, speaking of nobility and strength, set with jewels, probably speaking of the fact that he was um, masculine, strong, potentially had veins in his arms, right? His body is polished ivory. The word for body here is actually loins. And as she's moving down the description of his body, she is at the point that, that She's praising um, her sexual union with him, right? His body is polished ivory, a tusk of ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold, speaking of a firm foundation of beautiful strength. His appearance is like Lebanon, 
choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I think it's powerful that she actually ends the description after she's moved down his entire body, focusing on his mouth. The mouth is one of the most intimate parts of our body. It is very sexual, right? It is filled with nerve endings and, 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 and kissing is one of the most powerfully um, intimate things we can do. But it's what we also reveal our souls with. It is powerfully intimate, not just in a physical way, but, but in a deeply emotional way. As we open our mouths, we reveal who we are and we invite others in. With it, we kiss and with it, we speak. It says, I love you in so many ways. She ends her description with that focus on the mouth because she is longing to hear him say, I love you. She longs for him to kiss her because he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend. I want my love. I want my friend back. Now in 6.1, the chorus which echoed her emotional condition has completely changed its tune. Take a look in 6.1. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? By leading herself to focus on what was strong, on what was good, on what was positive, she has led her emotions to desire instead of fear, to strength instead of weakness, to pursue instead of running. And then we find in verses 2 and 3, the culmination of the poem, my beloved has gone down to his garden. All right, so we, we skipped a few steps here. Let's, let's just own it, right? Suddenly he's back in the poem, and he's not just back in the poem like they're being intimate, right? The garden is that place of sexual activity and sexual union. Um, this is a beautiful description of what some would call makeup sex, okay? This is them at this point moving back into intimacy, back into joy, right? My beloved has gone down to his garden. He is rolling in his beds of spices. He is grazing in the gardens. He is gathering his lilies right? She is singing the praise of their intimacy and the joy of their oneness. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. Once again, we are in that place of mutual giving and receiving, loving and being loved, intimacy and joy. He grazes among the lilies. All right. This is poetry which means it's describing what can be, not necessarily telling us how to get it. It's describing the natural process of, of conflict that threatens intimacy and the pursuit of intimacy in the face of conflict. So what are some applications we can take from this? What are some applications we can take and put into our marriages so that this becomes a description of our marriages, our pursuit of intimacy, so that conflict doesn't destroy intimacy, but can actually strengthen it. Well, there's a few things I want to take away from this. First, we need to see conflict as a gift instead of a threat. We need to see conflict as a gift 
instead of a threat. This is not natural, but by faith, we can do this, right? Here's the thing. God wants to change you. One of the most fundamental things God does with a believer in Jesus is he changes him, right? God loved us enough to send Jesus to die for us and rise again for us so that we can be forgiven, cleansed, and made new. Now, here's the thing. God loves us exactly as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. God will change us. And that's often a painful process because we love ourselves, right? We love our pride. We love our sin. We love everything, right? We, we're in love with, with our own sinful view of the world. And God's like, look, I'm going to break your heart a little bit, not to hurt you, but to free you because you're in love with things that are draining your life. And I want to free you from those things and, and reunite, reunite you with me so that you can have full life, right? God wants to change you, to expand the borders of your heart so you can experience more joy, right? The more closed off, self-centered we become, the less joy we're able to experience. God wants to expand the borders of our heart. He wants to increase our capacity for joy. And he's going to do it in our relationships. He's going to do it in our, in our hardships, and he's going to do it in our marriages. The marriage is... The, the most intimate, um, vulnerable relationship most of us will ever have. And in that place of vulnerability and intimacy, God is going to chip away our rough spots. He is going to do his surgery, cutting out the things that, that are robbing us of joy and killing us and killing our marriages. And that's going to be hard sometimes. Here's the thing I want you to hear. God wants you to be happy, right? God designed you for happiness, right? but he designed you for real happiness, lasting happiness, not the short-term happiness that comes from self-centered self-fulfillment, but the long-term powerful happiness that comes from actually becoming holy, which means becoming like Jesus. It's often said that the gift of marriage has more to do with your holiness than your happiness. That God wants you to, in your marriage, pursue holiness more than happiness. And that's true, but I don't like the, the sterile way that comes across because it makes holiness sound like something other than happiness. The reality is, as we grow in our holiness, we grow in our capacity for happiness. God is working to increase the boundaries of your joy. And when your heart rises up against your spouse, when, when you come into conflict where you had an expectation that wasn't fulfilled, a hope that wasn't realized, where, where you felt like there was a betrayal, where you trusted and it didn't come through, when your heart rises up against your spouse, instead of lashing out in pride, instead of pulling back in fear, you need to push forward in prayer. You need to stop. You need to breathe. You need to pray. God, what are you in this showing me about me. Now that's the last prayer you're going to want to pray. Because when you're in the middle of conflict, all you see is their fault. All you see is how they hurt you. And for you to stop is an act of faith to say, God, there's something in this you want to show me about me. Right now, my heart is rising up in self-righteousness, anger, and fear. God, what are you showing me about me? Pray. Hmm. Not that God would crush them, but that God would crush you in beautiful ways. And I don't mean that in a self-abusive way. I mean that in a beautiful way. God, show me what about me is broken. Show me what about me is causing me to get so angry right now. What insecurity, what fear, what sinful desire is being thwarted right now that I'm so angry? Show me. 
Give me the gift of repentance. And while you're praying for that, pray that God would bless your spouse. God, let grace rain down on our marriage and bless him and bless her. So first, we need to see conflict as a gift instead of a threat. Second, we need to stop trying to win the battle instead of trying to win the war, right? The battle is about who is right. The war is about love. I remember one time I took Lauren to the zoo on a date and we had a great day. And um, I mean, it was just kind of out of the blue. We were leaving and there was a, uh, a no parking sign. And um, uh, I was convinced that we could have parked closer, <laughs> that this sign actually said no parking from here to the corner. And she said, no, no, no. It means no parking all the way down. And so on the way out, I wanted to make sure that she knew I was right. So we had this great date. And on the way out, I'm like, oh, by the way, you see the sign? I was right, right? Minor conflict, minor victory, <laughs> major loss, <laughs> right? We were on a date. It was a great day. And on the way out, I got to make sure I win this little battle, this little flush of hurt pride on my part. Who are you to tell me how to drive? Who are you to tell me where to park? I got to point out that the sign pointed the direction I said, and here's the thing, man, I didn't win anything in that. I lost, right? I, I had a nice, quiet ride home, right? We, we, we had to sort through, okay, why was my pride offended? Now, why is your pride offended? And, and why am I hurt? And why are you hurt? And how are we going to find our place back to that place of intimacy? I won the battle. Hmm, I was right, but man, I lost the war. See, the war is to love and be loved. And after the flush of hurt and pride pass, I could see it, right? And that often happens to us. We feel so self-righteous in the moment. And after that all passes, man, we realize all that's left is hurt. You guys, don't let your hurt pride inflame your sinful heart. Pray. Pray for humility to see the real battle and, and learn how to fight the right fight. You know, there's a, there's a right kind of competition in marriage. The wrong, wrong kind of competition will destroy intimacy. That, the wrong kind of competition says, I will beat you, I will win, right? Some of you are highly, highly competitive um, and, and you need to learn just to stay away from board games, okay? You need to learn to stay away from dodgeball. You're just gonna hurt each other. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you don't compete in unhealthy ways. Romans 12.10 says, outdo one another. You want to know the right kind of competition? Outdo one another in love. Outdo one another in love. You want the right kind of competition in your marriage? Make this the competition. Who can, who can love their spouse more? Who can do more acts of service? Who can love them more, more powerfully, more intimately with more knowledge? Outdo one another in love, right? There's a right kind of provoking. After you've been married with someone for a little while, you know what provokes them. You know what sets them off, right? You've studied them and you know Hebrews 10.24 says um, that we are to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Do you know what provokes your spouse to love? Do you know what provokes your spouse to doing good deeds? You should, right? And make that the competition. Who can provoke the other one? Not to anger, not to hurt feelings, not to, but who can provoke the other to more love, to act in good deeds? deeds, toward one another, toward our community, toward um, the outsiders, right? Who can provoke more? So stop trying to win the battle, the wrong battle, and instead fight to win the war. Lastly, focus on what God is doing in you and not what you want him to do for you. 
Focus on what God is doing in you and not just on what you want him to do for you, right? Here's the thing, you guys. It's not wrong to ask God to change your spouse. It's really not. You're married to a broken person and they desperately need your prayers and you know their weaknesses more intimately and more powerfully than anyone else. And, and it's actually an act of love for you to pray for them. If your spouse is, is struggling with pride, pray for humility. If they're struggling with fear, pray for courage. If, if they are struggling with a lack of faith, pray that they would be strengthened in their faith. If, if they are struggling, you know, pray, right? You should pray for your spouse, for their growth and for their change. But it has to be a prayer that comes from humble love and not prideful judgment, Right? Our prayer needs to come from a place of mutual brokenness and not, man, when are you going to grow up and be like me? When are you going to be mature like me? When are you going to have your act together like me? Right? That kind of prayer isn't even a prayer. It's a complaint. That kind of prayer is like a grumbling, like, God, why would you give me someone broken when I'm not broken? Why would you give someone, give someone to me who struggles in that way when I don't struggle in that way, right? We need to pray from a place of humility and mutual brokenness where we can see eye to eye with their weakness, right? And here's the thing, man. This is going to be really hard on your pride because when, when you're angry at them, when they let you down, when they're late for dinner again, when they don't call, um, when, when they um, set up expectations and don't fulfill them, everything in you is going to want to rise up in pride. I didn't get what I wanted. And to pull back in fear, you don't love me. But instead to push forward in humility and say, I will love you and I will pray for you. I will serve you. Because I'm going to focus on what God is doing in me instead of what I want him to do in you. See, we get obsessed about changing our spouse. We get obsessed about fixing them. But the reality is we can't. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And the only thing we can really do is cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he changes us. We can't fix our spouse, but we can let God fix us. And so instead of focusing on everything that's wrong with our spouse, let's instead focus on how God is challenging and fixing us, right? Where he's asking us to fight for joy or to push deep into gratitude or to grow out in faith. Instead of succumbing to the pride that says, it's my job to fix you through nagging, through, through shaming, through unkind words through expectations. It's not my job to fix you. It's my job to cooperate as God fixes me. And it's my job to love you, to cherish you, to honor you, to respect you, right? And when I don't find you respectful, to give you the gift of respect. And when I don't find you, to my heart to be flowing with, with overflowing affection, to give you the gift of cherishing. To say, I will, because God loves me, love you. I will, as God is fixing me and changing me, let that flow out of me to you. Because the reality is each one of us is a bigger sinner than we know. And we have a bigger God than we know. And grace is a greater gift than we know. And in marriage and in conflict and in these struggles, God is revealing more of himself to us and more of ourselves to us so that we can get more of the gift of grace. Not that we get more of grace, but we get a greater experience of it. As the boundaries of joy are pushed out, we get a greater experience of God's love in us and through us, and that allows us to build a greater garden of experience and intimacy with, with their spouse, the one that God has given us to love. So instead of asking, can I have my own way? 
instead of asking, am I loved? Say, I can't get my own way because God, (laughs) I'm here to get your way. Instead of desperately asking, am I loved? Say, I know I'm loved because God sent his son to die for me and rise again for me. I am fully loved. And from that place of security, I will now love you. And from that place of security, I will now be loved by you. And that will allow us to have healthy conflict. Health kind of conflict that, that produces growth and greater intimacy instead of the kind of conflict that drives a wedge between us and destroys our joy. As we come into a time of um, response, I want to leave some questions with you to consider and to pray about. First of all, think about your last fight. Mm, Probably not a pleasant thought, but think about it. Did you fight for a deeper experience of grace or did you fight to be right? Do you have some repenting to do? Confession or repentance with your spouse? To let them know, man, I was fighting to win the battle and I wasn't fighting to win our war, and I'm sorry. Secondly, what would it look like for you to fight for repentance instead of to fight for pride? In your conflict, what would it look like for you in the conflict to actually say, all right, God, what does it look like for me to to grow in grace, to grow strong in faith, to actually become a source of love to my spouse, a source of encouragement, a source of grace, even if they aren't deserving, instead of a source of of anger and resentment and hurt? What would it look like for you to fight for repentance instead of pride? And thirdly, how does God love you? Excuse me, how does God's love for you free you to fight for love in your marriage? This is the deep one, and this is the gospel application, you guys. You can't fix your own heart, and you can't fix your marriage. But that's God's business. That's what he does, and that's what he's promised to do in Jesus. So how does you going deep in God's love, knowing that you are loved by God, that he sent Jesus to die for you and rise again for you, that you are fully accepted in Christ. He's not waiting for you to prove yourself. He's not waiting for you to earn anything. He gives you his delight as a free gift. How does that help you, that security, that joy, that overflowing experience of God's love free you to love your spouse with all their sin, with all of their brokenness, with all of their flaws? How can experiencing the unconditional love of God in your heart help you grow in your unconditional love for your spouse? Pray about it. Fight for it. 